Okay, Psalm 105. Um, we've been talking about our disciplines all year long, and it's shepherding your heart so that you're ready to shepherd your home. You take a well-shepherded home into this church, and you engage in ministry in this home. You're a man who is striving to be deacon qualified so you can serve formally in this church. You're a man who strives to understand God's word better and better every day. Those are the five disciplines we want to keep in front of us. And what we know, that's going to say the same thing this time that we've said all year long, is it all starts in your heart. It starts with the way that you engage with your heart and the way you care for your heart. So uh, we've been talking a lot this year about prayer, and uh, prayer is a significant part of your heart shepherding. And, and this morning is no exception. Um, God gives us a template for how to do that in Psalm 105. Um, the Lord knew that Israel was a very forgetful people. He knew that they had a very, very short memory. This is actually a long psalm. It's 45 verses long. And I'm not exactly sure when it was written. Um, but this is amazing to see what happens. He knows these people need to come before him. He's already given them instructions. You need to love me. You need to obey me. All of these things. He's given them the law. They've got all of this in front of them. And uh, he knows that they are forgetful people even after giving them the law. So what we have here is a template that helps Israel understand a really good way to maintain your affections and your devotion to the Lord. And the first seven verses of this just talk about how important it is for us to communicate with God and the nature of our communication. And you can see it in, ver in the very first verse. It's giving thanks to him. It's singing to him in verse 2. It's speaking of his wonders and giving glory to his holy name. It's seeking him. It's remembering him and marveling um, at everything that he does. It's really wonderful to just see all the different ways that we encounter the Lord and we communicate with the Lord. We sing, we praise, we do all these things. Um, the remainder of this psalm is astounding. It, it's really, really helpful to see what the psalmist says for 35 or so verses here, starting in verse 8. Um, and the main thing that Israel is doing here is they are being reminded of what God has done. In verse 5, he says, Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and his judgments. And then the, the psalmist goes and enumerates those. He starts in verse 8. And you can see in verse 9, he talks about his covenant that he made with Abraham, where he said to Abraham, uh, You're an old man, and your wife is old, you're beyond childbearing years, and I am going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you a land. And I'm giving you this covenant of circumcision to remind you and it's a sign for you that I'm giving you some land. And then he talks about um, his words to Isaac here in verses nine, as well, in verse 9 as well. His oath to Isaac. His promise to Isaac was, if you stay here and you don't leave this land, I will bless you. And Isaac lived among the Philistines. And Isaac planted his crops. And in the first year of his crops, they yielded a hundredfold. And he became very, very wealthy and very prosperous and successful mentions his covenant that he kept that he reiterated with Jacob where he said to you this is going to be your land this is the, the covenant that I made to your father Abraham I'm going to keep that covenant in you your people will go away and they will come back and this will be your land so he starts with the covenants and uh, Israel needed to be reminded of the covenant that God gave to Abraham 
that he was keeping as they were reading this psalm that was in front of them hundreds of years later. Then he goes through and he talks about how they left their land. God brought famine into their life and into their land. And yet Joseph went ahead of them into Egypt. And he goes into great detail about Joseph's story, as you can see, um, starting in verse 16 and following. Joseph was sent down and talks about his enslavement and his, his, his purpose and his place in, in slavery. And talks about him, him being in prison. And then it talks about how he was taken out of prison, starting in verse 22. And he was given success. And the whole purpose of what he did that was so that he could sustain Israel and he could be the means by which Israel obtained food so that God's promises may be sustained. And he talks a long time, the psalmist does, uh, starting in verse uh, 25, about how Israel was fruitful and they multiplied and the heart of Pharaoh turned against Israel and they became slaves. And then he enumerates eight out of the ten plagues that came across Egypt goes through eight of the ten of the plagues. The the boil plague is not there and the plague on the livestock is not there but he enumerates the rest of them and he does this so that Israel will remember exactly what it was that God had done. Each one of those God was proving to Pharaoh I am greater than you are. I am better than all of your other gods. Talks about how after he goes through that how the nation of Israel leaves Egypt Egypt could have no more of them. They let them go. And talks about how they survived in the wilderness and, and then they entered into the promised land. And we look down at verse 44. He gave them the lands of the nations that they may take possession of the fruit of the people's labor. Israel moved in. When they, they moved in, the manna stopped and they ate the, the produce of the land. And then verse 45 is where it all comes down to. It circles back around to where they started so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise Yahweh. So it's a very long psalm here. It's much longer than most of the psalms. It's 45 verses. It goes into great detail. And what he does is he does this so that Israel will have things to remember Yahweh by. That they can actually remember, in addition to all these commands and laws that they need to keep, they have a God who has delivered them time and time and time again and sustained them. He enumerates all of the things that that, he is, that Israel has has benefited from from God, and we're really no different from Israel. We're, we're not living in Israel. We're not the people of Israel here today, but the principle is the same. We tend to be forgetful people. It is easy for us to forget what God has done in our lives, in leading us out of our darkness and leading us out of our destruction and out of our despair into a relationship with Him. Um, so, in the same way that God is is speaking to Israel. It is good for us to remember what he has done for us, to remember the journey that he has taken us on from the day we were born until the day he saved us. He never lost sight of us. He never never lost sight of the plan that he had for salvation for us. He was working the whole time to establish within us a testimony of himself that would lead us to salvation. And he's been working since the day he saved us. He's been working to refine us and it is good for us in the same way that that um, Egypt remembers the specifics of what God did for them for us to remember the specifics of what he has done for us both to save us and to sanctify us and to look forward to what we are doing so when you pray um, it is good to remember from time to time the things that God has done in your life in my life it is good for us to remember that 
that God worked marvelous, wonderful works in our lives to bring us to a knowledge of him. I was born into a missionary family, and I had no idea that I was lost for 16 years. I had no idea. I couldn't believe that I was lost until I realized I didn't have what I thought I had. And um, I had professed Christ. I had spoken of Christ. And all of it was because I was surrounded by Christianity. But uh, we have a God who, despite whatever situation we come from, whether it's one where we have no Christian influence in our lives or we had a lot of Christian influence like I had, God has rescued us from our lost condition. So uh, if that helps your prayer life, uh, praise God for it. Remember the things he has done for you, and that will stimulate and motivate um, your obedience and your affections for him. But again, thanks for coming to build. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being faithful and grateful and glad you're here. So before we um, do that, before we jump into it, we should pray because we're going to be talking about God's word and how to handle God's word. And we'll be even looking at some um, passages. So let's do that. Let's pray first. Okay. Father, we do want to pray and we want to end this prayer. We want to align ourselves under your heart and your mind so that we think your thoughts about your word. I pray, God, that you would... um, Bring clarity to our minds about how to interpret your word and and even how to apply it and understand the the differences between interpreting and applying. And so, God, we humble ourselves under you and we ask for your word to speak over us and that we would be men who um, are well equipped to handle your word accurately. Lord, that would be pleasing to you. Would you accomplish that in us? Um, What we're doing here today is not a a pill that you swallow and then you forever have the um, training to do it. It, it, Today is the beginning of a a long process, a lifetime process of growing in how to interpret your word rightly. So, Lord, we ask for your help and we commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, what we did last time is you had a part one, which was the hermeneutic, and it was called presuppositions. And what we walked through last time... Uh, were kind of the foundational things that are underneath us that determine why we do what we do. So we talked about inerrancy and inspiration. We talked about uh, the Spirit writing the Scriptures through men. Um, we, we talked through some important definitions. We talked about what literal, grammatical, historical interpretation means. We'll, we'll talk on that again today. We, we walked through last time... Um, two wrong ways to interpret scripture. Listen, there are about 5,000 wrong ways to interpret scripture. I gave you two basic ones that seem to be more central to what's going on and probably in the circles that we swim in in our culture. Um, you can spiritualize the text or have an allegorical approach to the text. We talked about that last time. And, a, and then the what it means to me method, um, which we'll touch on again today a little bit. And then we start talking about the right way to interpret scripture And that's the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. Um, And then what we just started in on last time were the principles for interpreting Scripture, principles for controlling ourselves. And that's what you see at the top of your sheet today. That's where we're going to pick back up again is in how to study the Bible, what are the principles for interpreting Scripture? There are rules that you use to go through to help you interpret Scripture. You already know most of these rules. You already almost do them instinctively and may not even know it. And you apply these rules to every document you ever read. If it's an email, if it's a newspaper, if it's the funny page, no matter what it is that you read. is it, I just dated myself. I just said the funny page, didn't I? Um, 
whatever it is you're reading, you, you, you know how to adjust and to apply these kinds of basic rules um, to interpretation. And, but, so inter rules for interpretation are important for that sake alone. But rules for interpretation are also important to help control yourself. And you might find it um, surprising to consider, as we look at that first paragraph there, that this involves self-control. Um, when you study God's word, guys, you have endless temptations to draw you away from the text. And you start thinking about other things. This becomes a, the word of God sometimes becomes a trigger that makes you go, oh yeah, I remember. And you start in your mind just running down a road and, uh, to things you've heard before, or things you've studied before, maybe even other passages or whatever. And you start running down a road. And the next thing you know, it, it may not cross your mind to consider that the place you just ended up in your mind isn't, isn't what the text says. But you went through this process of running and what you need are a good set of rules for interpreting that help you stay close to the page of Scripture. The way I liken it is you, you need a short chain with just a few links in it that goes around your neck and it's attached to the page of Scripture. So that as you're reading, you don't go, oh, oh I know. No, stay right there. And you need those rules that help keep you looking at the page longer. And so that's what we're going through. The first place to start, we talked about this a little bit last time, is to prayerfully position yourself under the God of the Word. This is build discipline one. That's your first principle. That's your first discipline. Listen, if you come to these words and you're going to teach because you've got to put together a really cool message for other people to hear, you missed it. If you come to the Word because you've got to win an argument at work tomorrow, Monday, you missed it. You come to this word because you're a worshiper of the God of that word. And so you need to pray first to align yourself underneath God in his word so that you are a worshiper who is interpreting, not just an interpreter. Okay, that's very important. And it takes discipline to do that. You don't naturally, when you wake up in the morning, open your Bible and you're instantly a worshiper. I'm ready to go. I'm going to worship. Discipline yourself to think that way to plan for that. There is a sample prayer that is given to you on page at the bottom of page one and into two and into three. Listen, guys, it's a sample. It's not inspired example, right? It's a sample prayer, um, but it, it, it touches on the kinds of things that might be helpful for you as you're beginning to, to study. So now let's go on page three, talk about number two, expect a coherent meaning. Here are the rules that you want to use in interpreting scripture. And I put on your notes uh, back on towards the first page that uh, this material here uh, relies heavily on Joel James material. Uh, Joel has been here before. And what I've done over the years is I've taught from his syllabus that he basically has. And I've put so many of my own notes mixed in with it. I, I couldn't even follow my notes on his notes anymore. So I just rewrote it. And I spent all last week doing that. And I finished yesterday like at three. So there are some typos I didn't catch and we're going to catch them together and um, fix them. So anyway, expect a coherent meaning when you come to the Bible. That, you don't want to miss that. When you come to the Bible, expect that you'll understand it. And not only a coherent meaning, I would even add on this a, a single meaning. A single coherent meaning. When was the last time that you communicated so as to not be understood? 
When was the last time you were not eager for your spouse, your children, your employees, your boss, your students, your teacher to understand you? And when was the last time you intended to communicate, now get this, two equally valid meanings with the same words and you expected your hearers to discern that you intended more than one meaning? Let me give you an example. As a dad, you say to your, to your son, take out the garbage. When was the last time you intended, in saying something like that, you intended two different things with those same words and you expected your son to know which one or pick whichever one he wanted? Nobody communicates that way. With one set of words, we mean one meaning. That's how we trust that language works so that when you open your mouth and you say something, the one meaning you intend is understood. We count on that. We bank on that when we communicate, right? We all communicate to be understood in these ways. Language and communication are gifts from God which allow us to take the unseen ideas that are in our minds put words to them and they come out and other people get what was unseen in our heads. It's a gift. Language and communication are gifts from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence by sentence. And when, we pe- when other people speak, we listen to them intuitively expecting to understand what they say. We never go into a conversation, I have no confidence that I will understand anything you say. Because language is so iffy. Okay, there are some times when we do that, maybe, but that's because we're sinful. Not because language is bad. Okay? So, here's the main idea that you don't want to skip over. The Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood, just like you mean your words to be understood. The, the, the principle that I would say over and over and over again to you is extend the same courtesy to God in his words that you expect of others with your words. You expect them to understand you. You put your words together in such a way so that they will understand you. Expect an understanding of God's word because he meant to be understood. Isaiah 45, verse 18 and 19, God says, I am the Lord, there is none else. Watch this. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. The Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning and his words were not in a secret place or an unfindable place. They had only ever been out in the plain sight of Israel. He communicated so as to be understood. I love Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. God has not communicated everything that he knows or everything that he has planned for man. There are still some secret things that belong to him that only he knows. But there are revealed things that belong to man. In other words, God expects that man understand those things that he has revealed. God does not hold us accountable to understand what is secret in his mind, only that which he has revealed. And notice the extent to which God expects understanding. That we observe all the words of the law. That means what we obey. So the revealed things of the law that God gave through Moses were so clear it could be obeyed. So not only does he communicate so that you would go, oh, I understand. He communicated so clearly that you would say, oh, I understand and I will obey. 
That's the coherent meaning there. That doesn't mean that every passage of Scripture is easy to understand. What did Peter say about Paul's writings? Some of those things are very hard to understand. So we read and we study God's Word expecting to discover one coherent message. Last paragraph of that page. One coherent message after another after another from one passage to the next. Even though it may take some study and patience. Again, we expect to discover one meaning in each text, not several meanings in each text. That is exactly what we expect of others when we communicate to them. We count on that. We enjoy that basic understanding about words and their meaning. Above all, we should extend the same courtesy to God and his words. The Bible can be understood, guys, because what? He meant it to be. That's what Revelation is. Okay, number three. Hold fast to the normal use of words and language. Read and study the Bible following the practices we consider normal for any other important document. When a husband comes home from work and finds a note on the counter letting him know that the light bulb in the hallway is out, he doesn't read the note in a way that concludes spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. <laughs> right? Rather, he reads the note normally. And puts a new bulb in the hallway. That's the normal interpretation of the note that was the intended normal meaning. And we have to read our Bibles the same way. You don't do that to notes. You don't do that to emails. But why, when the Bible is open, do we do that? It's crazy, isn't it? This practice is known as the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation. Normal reading or interpretation means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident that the author was using a figure. So here's a good example. Jesus said in John 10, verses 7 to 10, I am the door. When we read that, we do not conclude that Jesus is made of wood and he swings on hinges. You naturally get it. You don't have to be told that he's not actually made of wood. You get it. Your mind and your understanding of how language works just automatically accommodates to that. We naturally understand our Lord was using imagery in his communication. Our minds intuitively see that and we get it. Um, but even when interpreting the figures of speech, it is good practice to begin with the literal meaning to get the author's point. So what's a door? What's the purpose of a door? How does it function? And then you can ask yourself the question then, well, what was Jesus trying to communicate by suggesting that metaphoric resemblance of a door. The literal or the normal use of an actual door guides the meaning of the figure of speech. Jesus is the entrance or gateway to eternal life. Turn to John 10 for a minute. Um, and as you're turning there, I'm going to keep going. It's important to understand that the author and the context are the ones who get to determine the meaning of any metaphor or figure of speech, not the reader. And I want you to watch this. So the, the verses we just considered were verses 7 to 10. And that's where Jesus said at, in, at the end of verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Now he's been talking about a doorkeeper and uh, the fold of the sheep and um, the shepherds of the sheep and the ones who really aren't the shepherd, who are strangers. But look at what he says in verse 6. This is what John says. This what? Who gets to define what it is? The author does, okay? Hearers do not get to decide whether or not a figure of speech is being used or not. Think about that. You would never do that with in communicating to your wife or to your children or to your students as a teacher or to your employees as a, as a boss. You would never communicate and leave it to them to decide if what you were saying was figurative or not. 
authors get to determine what is figurative or not, right? So again, it's just a common way that language works, the words work. Okay, so hold fast to the normal use of words and languages, or language. When you come to the word of God, don't let just, just don't throw and abandon the idea. I got to look for something really unusual here. The way that these words work is different here than the way the words work when I use them during the day. No, these words work the same way. They're just a lot more important words than any words you or I will ever say, right? Number four, understand the purpose of the accommodation of revelation. What is meant by the accommodation of revelation? It simply means that sometimes God accommodates what he has revealed so that our finite intellect can grasp his meaning. Meaning, God revealed his truth in terms that human beings can understand. Here's one of the clearest ways that he did that, but that we skip over or overlook. It's that he actually communicated scripture in some of the most basic, common, well-known languages to man. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He didn't find some really technical secret language isolated up on a mountain somewhere away from all of the common people and speak forth his revelation so that most of us can't get it. He accommodated himself to the most basic languages available in different eras. Hebrew, Aramaic. Um, Part of the Old Testament is in Aramaic. There are sections in that. And then New Testament Greek. Everybody spoke it. So he accommodated himself to the language that almost everybody spoke in the world. Also, when God, God's word speaks of infinite or divine concepts about him, it does so in terms that we can relate to. For example, in 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God the Father, a spirit being, has physical eyes as we do. He doesn't. But God knew that eyesight is the most perceptible of the human senses. Therefore, he described his infinite perceiving abilities that way. Accommodation means that God stoops to our level, describing himself in ways that we can understand. His point in doing so is never uh, to... Uh, make to cloud his meaning. It's only t- intended to make his meaning more clear. You, you don't look at a sentence like that, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth. You don't look at that and go, oh, that's so confusing because God doesn't have eyes. You don't do that. You understand, oh, I get it. He's, he sees everything in the way that he sees, which is not the way I see. And isn't this similar to what parents do with toddlers just learning to speak? They accommodate their language to a more simple structure for the purpose that their children will understand. Right? So they'll understand what you're trying to communicate. Listen, you never talk baby talk to your little one um, so that you obscure your meaning to them. When our little kids were learning to walk and they were coming over and crawling and they were starting to touch that, I didn't go into a, an essay on electricity and the dangers. It was really simple. It was this. No touch. No touch. See, I accommodated what was in my mind because I know all of the dangers. I know all that can happen. And I accommodated to a level that a toddler can understand. Two words at a time. No touch. And I did that. Why? So that they would what? Understand. And so God does the same thing sometimes in his words by accommodating in Revelation, giving himself hands Feet, eyes, ears. He doesn't have those things. The father doesn't. The son does. Um, 
Number five, page five. Read the passage or the book repeatedly to make observations. Here are some sample questions to ask and steps to take as you read and study scripture. Notice these questions lie at different levels. Some of them lie on a macro level, I would say, like the whole level, uh, the Bible level, the, the book under consideration level, and then others lie at the micro level or the specific passage or verse that you're trying to consider. And this is where the bulk of your time, guys, is going to be spent in your study and interpretation, where you're just making observations. This is where you're going to be spending the bulk of your time. And so you're going to be asking questions like, well, what kind of book am I reading in the Bible? Where does it lie in the Bible? What difference does that make that it's Ecclesiastes and it's there in my Bible and not any other place? What do you know about the author and the capital A author from this book in particular? What do you know about the audience? You know what would be really interesting to do? Study the book of Esther and ask yourself, what does this book reveal to me about God? Who is not, what? Mentioned at all in it. Oh, but he's there. That's different than reading the Psalms. He's everywhere, right? So what do you know about the audience? Are there important characters named that you need to identify? Like at the end of Titus, who's Zenos the lawyer? Who's, who's Apollos? Who are these guys? What do you know about the setting, the historical setting, the geographical, the cultural? Do you need to get a map out? Do you need to buy a laser pen to go through the map? <laughs> do you need to understand um, units of measurement? Everybody needs a laser pen. And I can direct you to somebody who sells really good ones if you want. Um, <laughs> currency amounts. This is helpful. Uh, I, I don't have it written in my Bible, but I know Smed does. You know the parable of the guy who owed so much he couldn't pay it back and he was forgiven? Mm -hmm. He actually has it converted in the side of his, in his margin of his Bible to current um, monetary amounts. It's astronomical. There's no possible way. I think it's, I want to say it's in the hundreds of billions or something like yeah, that. Is that right? Yeah. You, you can't, the guy could never pay it back. And that's the point. Even though he said he could, he's a liar. All right, so, you know, do you need to go through those kinds of things? Why was this book written? Is there anything in the book that tells you why it was written? What do you notice as you read and reread the entire book? And then you go down to kind of the micro level. What was the point of the passage immediately preceding the passage I'm studying? Read the passage over and over. Try hard to not assume you know what it says. Um, consider printing out a double-spaced text of the passage with wide margins so you can just scribble all over that and, and write observation questions. Ask yourself, what is this passage saying? Read every word in the passage. Read it, the sentence multiple times, each time emphasizing a different word. Write down every question that comes to your mind. What does this word mean? Why are the words in this order? To whom do the pronouns refer? Read the passage in several other translations. Guys, this is one of your best tools if, if you are English only in your study. Um, use several versions. Put NAS, ESV, NIV, King James Version, New King James Version, and put them side by side, Holman Christian Standard, and put them out and watch where do they differ. Why do they differ there? They made a decision there that's different from the other translators. Why? What's, that tells you where the issues are. I've got to get to the bottom of that. Um, what do you think the key words and phrases are? What in the text supports your conclusion? Listen, your favorite words do not determine that those are the key words in the text. Your favorite word is propitiation. That doesn't mean it's the key word and every time it comes up. Who gets to determine what a key word is? Yeah. Okay. So um, what words do you not know that you need to look up in a dictionary? Are any figures of speech used? Are there any contrasts or comparisons being made? 
What words or phrases indicate that a transition is being made? What kind of transition in thought is it? What is the main clause and subject and verb of that clause? What are the dependent clauses in your passage? How are all those clauses related to the others? Give thought to how the passage you're studying fits in with what you've already learned about the book. How does this passage fit in with what comes before and after it? What point is the author trying to make? What stands out to me? Do you need to adjust any ideas you've formed so far? And then start considering important things like this. What have you learned about God in this passage that must fuel your worship for him? Because after all, right, you're a worshiper. Um, or what have you learned about the Christian life that makes you uh, eager to pursue godliness in his strength? What have you learned about the nature of sin that you want to confess and repent or be more watchful for? Um, these kinds of considerations, even while you're still making observations, are important because they help you to maintain a worshipful attitude while you're doing it, right? Number six, understand the relationship between interpretation and application. There's an important relationship between the interpretation of a text and the application of it to the reader's life. Uh, they're like two back-to-back -back runners on a relay team. Interpretation of a passage runs its leg first on the pages of Scripture and then hands off the baton so that the application can then run its leg into the life of the believer. Okay? Interpretation is not application. And application is not interpretation. They both need one another greatly. They must, look, what would interpretation be if your life did not change as a result of making that interpretation? And what is your application if it's not based on the interpretation of the text? They both need each other desperately, but you gotta put them in the right order and you cannot take the two things and make them the same thing. One first and then the other, okay? Interpretation of a passage must be established first so as to understand the meaning of the text, then applications can be made. Second paragraph there, here's what interpretation is. It's the understanding of the truth intention of the author. You have a truth that you intend to communicate and the interpretation is the understanding of that truth intention. Okay? Or simply put, interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in the historical situation. What is application? Application is the various ways that one may need to live in light of the meaning in that passage. So it's important to understand what both interpretation and application are and are not. Let me give an example. Consider how the following example might reveal how jumbled up Christians can think about these important parts of Bible study. So imagine a, a woman is studying John 15, 12. Jesus said to his disciples, love one another. A wife studying that might think in response, now watch this. That means I need to love my husband better. But is that what Jesus really means in John 15, 12? As he speaks to his male disciples. Or has the wife conflated how she believes her life must change with what Jesus means? Do you understand? If her view of what that passage means is right, then that's what that passage means for everybody. And she might get upset when other women in the church try to love her husband better too. Because that is what the passage means, according to her. Right? This sloppy use of the word means 
when applies might be the better thought. That then opens the door for even more wrong statements. Because when you hear somebody says, that passage means I need to go love my husband better. Well, what's a person who's sitting there who didn't get that when they read it supposed to do? And now because that person used the word means, it opens the door for a whole bunch of wrong communication. And so then Christians start saying, well, that's what that passage means to you. What it means to me is, and now... Christians in their fellowship in their small group are down a road of stupidity that is not going to be helpful for anybody. Look at the next paragraph. Jesus is the only one who means anything in John 15, 12. He's the only one who means anything. It doesn't matter what the wife who's reading it thinks it means. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks it means. Jesus is the only one who means something. Let me ask you this. You're disciplining your two children. You've communicated the same thing to both of them. They're supposed to knock it off. That's all. You just made it clear. Knock it off. One child says to the other, well, um, that's uh, what dad's words mean to me are. And the other one goes, no, 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 no. That's, that, well, that may be what dad's words mean to you, but what dad's words mean to me is, what's that, what, do you, what would you do? Uh, wait a minute. I meant what I meant. You don't get to determine what I meant. I meant what I meant. So Jesus is the only one who means anything in those words. He's the author of those words. It is the reader's responsibility to interpret carefully so as to grasp his one meaning in the text. And then the reader must carefully think of implications and applications that are necessary for life. So let's talk about the meaning of John 15, 12. It is a command from Jesus for his disciples to live out a selfless concern for others. That's what it means. A woman reading or studying that meaning may pursue an application that involves her living more selflessly with her husband. That application, however, is not the meaning that Jesus had. Jesus didn't look at the, his disciples and say, you know what? You need to love your husbands better. That's not what he was meaning. That's her application that she wants to apply. But that's not what that passage means. Application and meaning, application and interpretation are two different things, but very related to one another. Is her application good based on that? Yes. But you can't call it the interpretation of the passage. You can't call it the meaning of the passage. Here's what Joel James says about the relationship between these two. Interpretation and application must always be kept separate. Let me give you a full pause there for a moment. If you separate interpretation from application, which you must you will run a certain danger. And the danger is what? You will interpret and stop. But you know what? You're better off to make that mistake than to make the other one. Neither one, neither, no, let me put it this way. Neither one are good. But at least you have the meaning of the passage. But you didn't act on it. You were a hearer of the word, but you weren't a doer. Never mind. They're both bad. <laughs> As I think out loud before you, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. I won't, I'll try not to do that very often. Um, they have to be kept separate. Here's one way to do that. Let's assume you're studying Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, you have to live your life as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's your acceptable worship. Um, here's how to keep them separate. Rewrite in your own words those two verses. Start every sentence with the words, Paul said. Paul said, I must be a living sacrifice. 
or no, Paul said that the Romans had to be a living sacrifice. Paul said to the Romans to not be conformed to this world. Paul said be, to the Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, that's what it means, right? Make sure you write only what Paul actually said to the Romans in that verse. That is the interpretation. And from that interpretation, you can develop appropriate applications. Let me give you uh, some examples from Romans 12 too. If the main idea is do not be conformed to this world, let me give you another wrong approach. Watch this carefully. This is the top of page seven. Here's a wrong approach. Well, to me, that means you shouldn't watch cable. In fact, this verse means all cable is evil. If you have a cable subscription, you're not a Christian. That's what Paul said to the Romans, you know. Um, notice how that's just one mixed, swirled fusing of meaning and how the person lives, believes he should live based um, on what the text says. What's the right approach? Two separate steps. Interpretation first. Paul said the Roman believers should not follow the same patterns of thinking and living unbelievers do. That's what it means. Application. Something that influences me to think like an unbeliever is watching cable. To keep from being conformed to worldly thinking, I should be more discerning about what I watch on cable. Or even avoid watching it altogether, maybe. Okay, do you notice the two crisp, clear steps? First interpretation, and then the application of the passage. What Paul said and meant for the Romans is related to, but it is not equal to how you are to act based on what he said and meant. One interpretation can lead to many legitimate applications, but you just have to make sure that you actually have what first? The right interpretation. Okay? Number seven. Linger longer in the text. This expands on number six. Most students of the Bible study the Bible because they are after something very important and good. They're looking for a meaningful application or encouragement from the Bible that will speak to them in whatever situation in life they are currently facing. Certainly, God intends his words to impact our hearts as we walk through life's daily events. All of that is good and it is right, and you should never not be that kind of person. But how we get to those necessary applications and implications for living is everything. This is especially where we need self-control as we read, study, and interpret Scripture with the hopes of living out a meaningful application because we want to be doers of the Word, right? Not just hearers. It is possible to get in such a rush to obtain the application for our lives and our study that we race through the holy words and phrases and clauses hastily looking for that which satisfies the application itch that we want scratched. We're just in a hurry. I've got this itch. I've got this thing going on. I just... You know, I've got to scratch it, so I race to find it. The problem is, we can scratch the application itch we feel in illegitimate ways with God's word. Perhaps God never intended his words that we're studying to scratch the application itch we're feeling in the way that we're trying to use his words. Or perhaps God intended those words to scratch a completely different application itch altogether. Here's what's scary. It's possible... For hurried interpreters, um, I lost my spot as I turned my phone off, sorry. Um, it's possible for hurried interpreters to walk away from the Bible satisfied that an application itch was scratched, but then God not be satisfied with how his words were handled. Do you understand? I really feel good about what I've got to take to live on now. What if God is saying, and I'm very dissatisfied with how you handled my word. 
That's possible. Do you understand? So what's the solution? Linger longer in the text and context. Doing so may delay getting the scratch for the application itch we feel, but it will be far more satisfying and edifying of a scratch knowing that God's words and his meaning were handled in an honorable, honorable way. Perhaps some examples of how a hasty glance um, at God's word can lead you to interpretations and applications that are unwarranted. Uh, here's some absurd examples. Philippians 2.3a. Joel and I, when we were in college, we used to joke around about this. Philippians 2.3, right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself, right? We, we like just to quote the first part. Do nothing. <laughs> so that was the joke that we always had. Just, you know what the Bible says? Do nothing. Right? That's absurd, right? But that is what those words say. Right? It's not untrue at one level. Right? So with a quick glance at Philippians 2.3a, one will see the imperative, do nothing. If we don't linger longer in that sentence to examine the impact of the rest of Paul's words, we might quickly, foolishly walk away with an unwarranted justification for laziness. Do nothing, right? You can do the same thing with Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious, right? It's a command. <laughs> Be anxious. Lingering just a little bit longer reveals a much better interpretation of Paul's meaning, which then paves the way for the correct application. God's meaning through Paul serves your heart much better and scratches your itch better than the quick glance ever did or could. Now, you might think that you would never do something so ridiculous as that, and probably not, maybe not. But what about the way many Christians view Jeremiah 29 11? By the way, um, D. Rob, I saw in the yearbook, was it Quincy that said that? <laughs> so the senior girl at, at Valley, because D. Rob is a Bible teacher there, and all the guys there work so hard that Jeremiah 29 does not mean what you think it means. It's right there below that, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, you know, plans for welfare, not calamity. That's the Christian, I mean, that's your meme. That's just like, if you could put it across your life, you would, right? And this senior girl who's been there, uh, what, what did she say? Uh, she said the most influential time, the most influential thing I learned in Valley was Jeremiah 29.11. Yeah, 29.11 doesn't mean basically what I thought it meant. Yeah, that's good. Here's what Joel writes on that. This, very, uh, this verse is often quoted as if it were a general promise to all believers. However, even a cursory examination of Jeremiah 29.11 shows that this was part of a letter sent by Jeremiah to the Jews exiled in Babylon. Reading further, you find that this promise was a part of God's plan to restore the nation of Israel in the future. The ones to whom Jeremiah was writing in the specific situation, their exile and their promised restoration, all of that limits the meaning of this verse. It is definitely not a sweeping promise that believers will have an easy and calamity-free passage through life. Listen, let's talk about Jeremiah himself. He was hated, harried, thrown in prison, kidnapped, and martyred for his faithful preaching. How did Jeremiah 29, 11 work for him? It didn't. Context determines meaning. How do you figure that out? By lingering longer. What could you do, man? You could just your eyes come across twenty nine eleven and your heart just leaps for joy. And there's a sense. Listen, to this. If you stay there longer, your heart will still leap for joy. But you know what? It, it'll leap differently because you will see how a God over such rebellious people like that is the kind of God that He is. That He would make this kind of a promise to them. I have plans for you, for welfare. 
I'm not turning my back on my promises I made to this nation. Listen, that changes the way your heart leaps for joy, but it should leap for joy in a more selfless way. Listen, for your heart to leap for joy about God, it doesn't have to always be about you or me. What if God is just gracious to other people and that impresses you? Is that okay? It has to be okay. Because that's the way most of your Bible is written, right? And maybe it'll make you think of other passages like in Romans 8 where it says, God causes all things to work together for good. Oh, there, that's the same God. The same God that was saying that to Israel. The same God saying that. I mean, you just linger longer. Your heart won't not leap. It just might leap a little differently for joy in what you see. So lingering longer can term, uh, term, uh, clarifies this. Quickly skimming through a passage because we're just eager to make an application. Actually, what that does is it positions us to miss the intended meaning entirely. Legitimate applications can never exist without the solid interpretation underneath them. And it takes more time than you think. So again, self-control and discipline is needed in this. Guys, here's one of the most important things that probably is in all of this. Train yourself, discipline yourself to want the original author's meaning more than a quick, meaningful scratch for an application edge. Train yourself. I want what this passage means more than I just want to feel good about what I walked away with. You'll get that, but you can't get it apart from the meaning of the text. Your life must change. It must be influenced by God's word, but that must happen the right way with an honorable use of God's word. Um, you will be far more satisfied by the legitimate application that arises from proper interpretation, and more importantly, God will be glorified by your carefulness with his word. Number eight. Okay, so now think about this. Here's one through seven so far. Pray, because you're a worshiper, right? You can't be doing any of this interpreting without being a worshiper. You've got to be that. You expect one single coherent meaning from God. You're going to hold fast to normal use of words and language. You're going to understand that the purpose of accommodation, if you come across it, because God is using it to actually be clear, not to confuse me. Um, I'm reading and I'm rereading. I'm making tons of observations. And I understand now the difference between interpretation and application. I'm going to make two steps out of that. And I'm going to linger a little bit longer there. So I do that. And now, number eight, grammar and syntax is important. Give it more weight in your interpretational decisions. When trying to communicate what is inside us, we don't select the top five words that describe our inward thoughts and simply speak those words in a list form. That's not the way language works. You don't come across, um, you don't say to, when somebody says, how you doing? You don't go, um, restful, um, peaceful, um, happy, um, okay, anxious. You don't just give out words in a list, right? That's not how language works. That would communicate something of what is within us, but it sounds like an old game show instead. Uh, what's that show where you had to give a word and guess? Uh, it's a password. password. Yeah, that's it. Who, who said that? Was that you? We just did. Yeah. So you and I know what we were talking about, and nobody else does. But that's okay. Game show network. There you go. <laughs> So language does not convey meaning merely, guys, this is important, at the individual word level. Meaning is not communicate. You don't communicate merely by saying a word. You take a lot of words and you string them together. And whether you know it or not, you, you understand grammar and you understand syntax, how words are put together. And you do it every time you talk. 
Now, you may not know and be able to write down what the rules of grammar are, but you know it in your head intuitively. That's the way language works. We learn at an early age to connect words together, arranging them thoughtfully so that the meaning we intend to communicate comes forth most clearly. Some words that we tie together when analyzed in isolation, they seem very insignificant, like words like the, uh, or a, and, and, right, and so forth. But when all of our words are considered in the relationship to one another, from the seemingly most insignificant words to the most colorful and descriptive words, our meaning is conveyed and we are understood. Now let me give you an example here of how grammar and syntax uh, works. I'm going to take you back to the ridiculous statement that I made last time. It's up here. First sentence. If it is raining, I will not come to your house until the rain stops. Okay? Here's the, the main clause. My main idea that I'm trying to get across to you is, is I will not come to your house. But there's kind of two conditions on that. I won't come if it is raining. Um, and I'll come, I won't come to your house until the rain stops. So kind of a repeat here. But this is the main idea. You can read that sentence there without all the symbols and colors, and, and you get it. I, I'm, I'm saying I'm not coming to your house until it stops raining. Right? Now, every single word is used in the second sentence. I just rearranged it. Okay? If, there's an if clause, and there's an until clause underneath that. And, and notice the main clause didn't change at all. Okay? I will not come to your house under this condition if the rain stops. And I will not come to your house until it is raining. What does this meaning, how does this meaning here compare to this one? Exactly the opposite, but every single word used in both of them. What changed? I tried to show it with color, right? This clause I put down here, and this clause I put up there. I didn't change the main clause, but I changed the entire meaning of the passage. Now, here's the problem. Most of us think that good Bible study is word study. Why do you just look up words? Well, imagine if you were to go and thought, okay, I'm looking at the sentence. What are the key words? Raining. And let's say I'll look up house and stops. I think I need to understand what the word stops means. So you look up those three words. Imagine you go to as many different dictionaries as you can. You're trying to consider what these words mean. Will you get something of the meaning if you look up raining and house and stops? Absolutely. You'll get something. But will you get, you won't know which meaning is intended. Why? Because your interpretation of a passage is not rooted in looking up a word. Because meaning is never communicated one word at a time. Meaning is communicated by the structuring, the syntax putting words together in clauses and arranging clauses together. That's where meaning exists. Meaning exists at the sentence level, not the word level. So you'll get something of it by doing word study. We'll talk about this in a minute. It's very important to do that. It's not the only way to do it. And you, you certainly would not want, want your kids or anybody, your, your teachers, your employees, your, your employer, you wouldn't want them to just simply define you know, some key words that you said and, and conclude what the meaning was. Clausal structure matters. You need to know something about grammar and syntax. The more you know about grammar and syntax, 
the, the clearer the meaning becomes. Okay? Does that make sense? Last paragraph on page 8. A verse in Scripture does not say more or less than what the rules of language make it say. The meaning we intend through our words, the meaning God intends through his words, is bound up in the grammar and the syntax of the words. Grammar rules, like subject-verb agreement um, and syntax, how the words and the phrases are related to one another, help convey the meaning of the verse. The more familiar a student of the Bible can be with grammar and syntax, the clearer the meaning intended in the passage will become. Okay? That is what the trust is going to really do, or H3, what it was, used to be called. You're gonna, those kinds of things are going to be what you're going to walk through all year long, thinking carefully about as you look at God's word. Do you guys understand that? Meaning is at the sentence level, at the clause level. A clause is where you have main verbs, um, and, and a, a, a main clause can stand on its own, right? This clause makes no sense on its own if it is raining. It's not a complete sentence. This is, I will come to your house. That's the main clause. This does not make sense as a main clause until the rain stops. So this is a dependent clause. This is a dependent clause or a subordinate clause. This is the main clause. So this is the main idea that's being communicated. But the two dependent clauses are very important. They add everything to what is being meant by that main clause. That's where the meaning level exists, never at doing word study alone. And that's where you've got to understand word study is important, but it's not everything, okay? So now let's talk about that. Number nine, be careful with the word's meaning. At the proper place and time, it is, uh, it is appropriate to isolate words in your study of Scripture in order to define them accurately. As you do this, keep in mind the historical appropriateness of the definitions you might seek. One of the great dangers a Bible student faces is reading a modern view of a word or concept into an ancient biblical word. Let me give you an example. To read a definition of slavery or slave from the slavery in the early days of our country's practice of slavery will not meet the definition of Paul's use of slave in the New Testament. It is historically inaccurate to read this more recent slavery concept into Paul's statements because both versions of slavery are not entirely equal. What Paul faced um, in slavery in, in uh, first century Roman Empire is not exactly equal to the slavery that this country practiced. Are there overlaps? Uh-huh. But they're not entirely equal. And so you don't want to read a historical, later historical use of a word into Paul's use of a word. That is called totality transfer. Totally transferring another century's meaning of a word into a first century word. By the way, you can do that um, the other direction too by taking a word that had a meaning prior to the New Testament era, but that it lost and making that be what Paul says. You can do it both directions. You can take a word after Paul and force it onto his meaning. That's not what Paul meant. And you can take a word before Paul ever used it and it lost that meaning and force that onto Paul's word and it doesn't mean that either. So you gotta look at his setting, his context. Another example, is our culture's use of the word grace equal to the way Paul used the word grace? I looked up again, the first definition that comes up in, in dictionary.com on grace is this, elegance or beauty of form and action or manner or motion. Elegance of form. For by elegance of form, you have been saved. <laughs> Through faith. 
I mean, it makes no sense, right? You can't take that and put it back in, right? Key words within the passage under consideration must be defined accurately to do this. It is helpful to consider the other uses of that word in the scripture. First, by the same author. So let's say we're in Titus and we need to look up a word and we need to figure out what it means. Um, what would be wise for us to do to get to the bottom of a word that we're trying to def define that Paul uses? Question number one. Does Paul use that word anywhere else in the book of Titus? Sensible. It's used all of the time. So I'm going to look at every use of the word sensible by Paul and Titus. Where would I go next? Pauline epistles. Good. And even a little bit, what are, they, what are these called? Right, but what, what, are, what are the, yeah, what, what do you guys call them, the concentric circles? Is that what you guys call it? So the next circle out is the pastoral epistles. And by that we mean Titus, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy. They were written around the same period of time with similar um, concerns, same author. So Paul using that word in a similar kind of setting. Where would you go to next after that setting? All of Paul's epistles. All of Paul's epistles. Where would you go after that? All of the New Testament. Whether it's Peter writing or Luke or Matthew or whoever, right? And then where would you also look? Whole Bible. Whole Bible. Is, is there an Old Testament equivalent of that word? And so forth. All right? Now here's what we do when we take a word like sensible. We go to dictionary.com and we look it up and we go, oh yeah. And... Using the English, it's, it's a good choice, but you can run into some real chain, uh, dangers there by just quickly leaving, okay? Um, key words within the passage under consideration have to be defined accurately, stay first in the same author and then others. If there are multiple meanings possible for the words, the immediate context always determines which meaning the author intended in the passage. I can't remember if I told you guys last time, but um, the word sleep in First Thessalonians 4 and 5 has three different meanings in a matter of about 20 verses. All in one context, broader context, and you have to look at each individual sentence context to get the right meaning. Um, and we do that. You do that with words. You can flex back and forth so easily in our conversations, and we get it. Um, you can accomplish much in your word study with just an exhaustive English concordance and some persistence. If you look at every use of a word, you'll naturally see its range of meanings. Um, it's nuances, it's in different contexts, and there's some great tools out there, guys, that you can get that will help you, English-based tools that will help you um, define words. It, it's very rare that you'll find in the New Testament a word that only has the same meaning in every single passage. As far as I know, I think there's two, and I'm going to reveal my theological stripes on this, unashamedly. The word propitiation, I think, always means the satisfaction of wrath. And I think Israel always means Israel, not the church. And uh, Scott, can I make a request? Can you go check the error on this side? I ticked it up one. It feels like it shut off completely. Hopefully understand the different meanings of the word hot. Hot, yes. <laughs> hot, that's right. There's hot and... <laughs> so here's some other words that you need to think carefully about from context to context the word called one time Jesus can say many are called but few are chosen and then Paul can turn around and talk about the called who are the chosen and not the many um, 
The word flesh, from one context to the next, can, I mean, usually we think of, man, flesh is bad, isn't it? Careful, the word became flesh. Well, wait a minute. I need to have a, another definition for flesh if that's the case, right? So words have multiple meanings, obviously. Uh, the fear of the Lord in, in Psalm 19, verse 9, is a synonym for what? Do you know? It's a synonym for the Bible. The fear of the Lord is clean. Um, after he talked about the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, the testimonies, the fear of the Lord. He didn't all of a sudden say, well, I'm, I'm done talking about the word now. I'm going to talk about the fear of the Lord. No, it's another synonym for the Bible. Um, but that's not what Solomon means and David means in writing in the Psalms and Proverbs about it. What the author intended in his specific context, that determines what a word means. No other contexts. Uh, that's how it works with you and your use of words. That's how it works with God and his word. Number 10. Getting close, guys. I promise. There's a uh, number 10. Compare and contrast your passage with other passages. That's cross-referencing. Um, some of the first things guys do when they're studying their Bibles is these two things. Word study and cross-referencing. And if meaning is not rooted at the word level, um, and if each individual context determines meaning, those are two things that are, must be done, but how they are done will either help you find the meaning of the passage or may lead you to a different meaning that is not the meaning of your passage. Okay? There's an important balance to maintain when studying Scripture. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 30 human authors, yet the Bible agrees with itself amazingly so, or actually not so amazingly so when you consider it was written by God. Because Scripture was breathed forth by God who knows everything and who never lies, the Bible does not contradict itself. That means passages that are more difficult to understand can be clarified by turning to other passages in the Bible. That's why you want to let uh, simpler passages help you interpret more difficult passages. But then this part's really important. But also... Just because the one author of Scripture never disagreed with himself from one passage to the next, that doesn't mean that every single passage says the exact same thing or has the exact same meaning. The unity of the Bible doesn't demand each passage have exactly the same meaning. That is why you must be careful when you cross-reference in your study. Each passage must speak for itself and then be lined up next to the other passages and considered in that string of passages. What is the overall message being communicated by God in each passage and then through the string of passages? Listen, in my back wall, I've got, back wall, my backyard, I've got a cinder block wall. It's made up of cinder blocks. To call that a wall does not require that each cinder block be a wall. If the one theme throughout all of that is it's a wall, I don't, you don't make a wall by making every a wall out of a bunch of little walls, right? Each block, each rock, each whatever is used to make a wall gets to be looked at and put, and it has its own unique place and position that's different from the others. But when you put it all together, oh, there's one thing going on here, a wall, right? So Scripture does not contradict itself. But you still need to look at every single passage and let each passage say what it says. Therefore, we avoid the practice of taking our conclusions from one passage and forcing it onto or into another passage in order to just get them to harmonize. Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. 
So I'm going to help it here by making what James says the exact same thing what Paul says. Let me give an example on justification. Have you ever been, has this ever bothered you? What you read about justification by James in chapter 2 and then you go read Galatians and Paul seems to be saying the exact opposite? In a study of the word justification in the book of James, it would be wrong to cross-reference Paul's use of justification in Galatians or Romans and read James' meaning into Paul's or vice versa. Each passage must stand on its own. The meaning of justification in James gets to be determined by whom? James and his context. And the meaning of justification in Galatians or Romans then gets to be determined by Paul in his context. Neither meaning overrides the other. Both speak forth what God intended to communicate concerning justification. It is the interpreter's job to get to the harmony in God's mind the right way concerning justification. And it does not come by making both passages say what? The exact same thing. You need to understand that. It's very important. So compare your passages with your passage you're studying with other passages, but be careful. Let each passage say what it says and then compare and contrast them. Notice where this step of interpretation is taking place in the list, guys. Where is it? It's number 10. And these are not inspired numbers by any means. Um, but it's towards the end. In other words, don't let your first study of your passage be, let's see, when he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay. Oh, i got to figure out what clay is. I'm going to go look over here. Don't do that. Don't do that first. Stay there. Stay on the same page. There will come a right time and a place to compare other passages. Slow down. Study a little longer before you turn the page. Number 11. After you've compared passages in the Bible with each other, then you can start to compare your interpretation with other interpretations. Your conclusions you're drawing about the meaning of those words, now you can go to other people's conclusions about the meaning of those words. In other words, you can go look at commentaries, look at study Bibles and things like that. Um, I find it, I have found myself over the years going to a Bible that the only thing it has on its pages is the verses. No cross-referencing, no study notes. I also have study Bibles and a lot of commentaries. And I cross-reference. But you know what this forces me to do? I just stay right there. Because where else am I going to go? So, uh, study Bibles are not evil. And cross-referencing is not evil. Um, and going to other commentaries is not evil. But it should be more like last, second to the last thing you do. Okay? It's good to check your understanding of a passage against interpretations of Bible that Bible scholars made uh, from prior ages of Christianity. It's impossible to know all of the geographical, historical, interpretational issues in a passage. Listen, some professor in Aberdeen over in Scotland did his whole life research on first century artifacts and in a commentary that he wrote to the Philippians he has three pages of stuff that you need to know of which you will use one good sentence but if it were you to have to go figure that all out ah You'd be spending so much time on stuff that you don't need to spend as much time on. So you should benefit from what the church throughout the age did through its godly men who studied the word um, and did research. Um, your Bible study can be reduced from hours of research right down to about five minutes. 
Notice where this step of interpretation takes place in the list. It's almost at the end. It's not at the beginning. There's a reason for that. As a rule, it's best for you to do your own study on a passage and then compare it with someone else's. I think Smith says, feed yourself. Don't eat somebody else's food. Feed yourself. Sometimes you'll need to use Bible dictionaries and commentaries early in the study process to get a handle on a certain word or a theological concept. That's certainly acceptable. However, avoid the trap of opening a commentary and reading it as if it were the Bible. In other words, guys, there are going to be times when you're studying and you're like, I am so, I, I have no idea what's going on here. And you should then look at your Bible stu- or your um, study Bible and, and go to a commentary. Take a look at it. But don't say, I'm going to study the Bible and then actually just read a commentary. There's a huge difference between those two things. Don't do the, the latter, okay? Work on a passage all you can, looking up specific words or concepts you don't understand. Once you've done all that you can to process a text and its meaning, then use good commentaries to fill in the gaps and correct errors. Rather than read the results of someone else's analysis, analyze the passage yourself first. You'll understand the message and the text, and you'll be able to apply it better. One of the things you're doing on the last page here, um, when you turn to commentaries is watching another person wrestle with the same text you are. I love this. That's one of the things I love the most about going to a commentary. Because I'm not going to a commentary because I idolize John MacArthur. Okay, maybe I do. But that's not why I'm going. Um, I go to see, watch him because what I want most is that passage is amazing. And now what I want to do is I want to get alongside somebody else who wrestled with that passage. And I want to see what he did when he wrestled with that passage. I want to see how that passage dominated him. And then you can do it with somebody who lived in the 1500s. John Calvin, Martin Luther. You can watch these guys wrestling with the same passage of scripture. They're trying to break away from a a whole system of religion. They're rediscovering the gospel. And they're looking at their Bible through those eyes those experiences. The text means what the text means. But they're different kinds of men than I am, and they're wrestling with that passage. And I want to get up alongside those guys, and I want to say, what if, when you look at that, what, what, what comes to your mind? And you know what? Calvin goes off on pages on, against the Pope. I don't come back and teach to you guys things we need to think about in regards to the Pope. But that's what he was doing. You, you can see pitfalls that guys get into that you don't want to get into yourself. You can see things that they saw, observations they were able to make that you would have never thought to think of because of their situation. So I'm telling you guys, commentaries are good. You need them. You don't need 20. You need a couple. And then put it at the end of your study. And you will gain so much if you use them the right way. Okay? Uh, lastly, Number 12, prayerfully summarize the meaning of the passage the best you can. Um, At the end of your study, you'll most likely have a lot of assorted ideas and conclusions about the passage that you've been studying. They may be on several different pieces of paper or uh, scribbled in your margins here in your Bible and then written on a couple different pages on a notepad over here. You got them on your laptop. That's when it's time to prayerfully pull it all together, sit in front of it, and prayerfully try to summarize how many meanings in that text? Summarize the one meaning in that text. Man, you got 30 things written down in 20 different places. You've got to come up with the one meaning. Okay? 
There are certainly many important details swirling around in all of that. Some of them are supporting details. Some of the observations you made are these observations right here. This clause. But that's not the main idea. The main idea is right here. Okay? So you've got to find all of those things and using all of those steps above, this is what you're running toward in your study. Sometimes you're crawling towards this. Prayerfully try to summarize the one point of the passage into one sentence. It might be an imperative. I must blah, blah, blah. The character of God reveals whatever. One sentence. That will be the fruit of all of your analysis that ex examined each little part of the passage. God used all of those parts and pieces not to communicate many meanings in your passage, but only one. Now try to put it all back together in a way that puts the accent on the one thing. And then you'll kind of just let all the little things hang underneath it, like ornaments on it. Okay. So there is a beginning introduction to hermeneutics of how to study the Bible. Um, the only way you learn to do this, look, th this is not a, you know when you're a kid, you get an injection and you've now been inoculated against the measles. Right? One time. Done. That is not what this is. This is a, an introduction. This is like taking a multivitamin. you got to keep taking it over and over and over and over for it to get its effect, to have it be in your system all of the time, to get the biggest benefit from it. Guys, you need to be thinking about hermeneutics all of the time. If you've done build well, the trust will be a great place for you to get a weekly multivitamin of hermeneutics. Um, and put it to practice. And you get to do it the rest of your life. Kyle? What's the balance between reading large chunks of the Bible daily and actually studying in our personal That's great. Um, I, th I think you actually need both of those things. Um, his question was, large chunks of Bible being read, or should I study smaller pieces? And the answer to that is yes. Now, how you do that um, is everything. Uh, some of you will have enough time where you'll be able to do both every day. You'll be able to do a, a half hour of just, I'm going to read as much of the Bible as I can in a half an hour, and then I'm going to take a half an hour and I'm going to study this one verse that I'm working on. Some of you will be able to do that um, because of your season of life or whatever's going on. Some of you don't and won't. And so you think, okay, now how can I have a regular routine of both in my life? Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read my Bible, large chunks, five days a week, Monday through Friday. The weekends are reserved for digging deep in the one or two verses that I'm studying. Or every other day. Look, is there a rule for how you have to do it? No, what you gotta do is figure out how you can do it, how you can sustain it, how you can be successful in it, and do both. What's the difference between both? One is when you're reading large portions of scripture, it's like you just bought a plot of land and you wanna get your mind around the many, many acres that you have. And so you rent a helicopter, you rent a plane, and you fly over it, and you go, oh my goodness, look at that beautiful green pasture, and then there's a creek that comes through over there, and there's a, a wooded area over there, and what a rock formation over there. Those things you would never be able to see until you got up high enough, and you flew over the whole thing, and you gain from that view of it, don't you? But that is not the only way you need to gain from that. You then need to get out of the plane or the helicopter, you need to get on your feet, and you need to walk through the pasture. 
and you need to go see the creek, and you need to walk through the trees, and you need to touch the bark, and you need to go see to the rock outcropping where it's at, and you need to benefit from that way, which it's not one against the other. It's not one is right and the other is wrong. You need both of them. You need to go figure out how to do that in your life based on your season of life and what you have time for. Maybe what you're weakest at. If you're weakest at actually getting down and studying, maybe it's time to say three days a week I'm going to do it. And I'm also going to read my Bible the other days in bigger portions. Okay? Uh, but pace yourself. Try to do both. Does that answer the question? For you? Any other questions, guys? Yes, d -Rub. Based off of what you said, I think it was in 7 or 8. Okay. When we're in New Testament, I'm thinking of like commands that are given to the, to the local church. Like when Paul's writing to Romans, he's speaking to those in Rome. Um, do you have like tips or tools for how we can discern what is specific to that first century Roman believer in that church and us today as believers? Yeah. Um, every time Paul says you, it might not be you, or it might be you. Uh, in regards to the meaning, obviously, it's only the you that are there in his context. But God inscripturated this book, locked it into time, or locked it so that it can exist throughout time, so that when I see what Paul said to the Romans, I give thought about what implications that has on my life, right? But I, I, you do have to be careful. I wrote this down as an example. Um, Mark chapter 6. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So we should do missions only in two by two. Huh. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, and do not wear sandals. Oh, but to wear sandals, um, and do not put on two tunics. I'm okay with that part, but um, I mean... I know people who have developed missions philosophies based off of that for the church. Um, when Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, I haven't seen anybody here apply that. Why? Because you know, don't you? He means the, that's what they did then, and I'm not violating God's will by not going up and kissing my brother. See, I mean, you already make these decisions and you know them. Some of them are more difficult. Some of them are not a direct, a, a direct connection to you. They are an indirect implication to you. Uh, and so you just have to be careful. That's why I think Joel's uh, example of Paul said to the Romans, blah, 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 blah. Paul said to the Romans, blah, 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 blah. Do that first. Then try to principalize what you see him saying to them. That's timeless. And live that out. There's a lot more to talk about on that. In an introductory way, we weren't able to cover all that. But does that at least start it, the answer? Anything else, guys, as we finish? Yeah, Chris. because the only people who can study the Bible are sinful people who are trying their hardest and doing their best. And some of them are, are uh, 
have sinister motives in what they're doing. But let, let's assume that sincere brothers are studying the Bible and they come to different conclusions. It happens all the time, doesn't it? All the time. How should we live with each other on that? How, how, how many, how many uh, let's say, let's say uh, John Calvin, um, Charles Finney, and um, John Piper. Did I just use all Johns? No, I used Charles. Um, studied the passage and came up with three different interpretations. How many interpretations does that passage have? Only, well, let me take that back. How many meanings does that passage have? Only one, but there were three interpretations that there are three different meanings. Only one of them can be right. How many times, you got three kids and you said what you said and they came up with three different meanings. How many meanings were there? There was one. Um, and that's why you just gotta do your work and do, do as much work as you can. Um, and at some point, say, you know, good men disagree about this. Um, but not all of them are right. Only one of them's right. Or maybe not even one of them's right yet that I looked at. Um, here's why I'm going to hold to what I hold to uh, the best that I can. And if I come back to the scripture a year later and I realize I missed something, I'll change. I don't want to be wrong. Uh, nobody wants to be wrong. Nobody studies to be wrong. Everybody studies to be right in what their interpretation is. But people just come up with different interpretations. And um, we need to learn to live uh, graciously with one another and that's why there's different churches that's why there's not one church over the whole world uh, because every church is in every set of pastors in like, think about what um, Paul said to Titus um, appoint elders in every city as I appointed you he didn't say there needs to just be one church on the island every church has to govern itself the way that it believes it should be governed that's, that's the only way it can work out and so one set of elders is going to come to a different conclusion about interpretation of a passage that another set of elders wouldn't. And that's okay. Uh, in heaven, we'll all agree. In heaven, we'll all be right. And it'll be great. In the meantime, we live graciously with one another. And you just, in your context, you seek to, to be as faithful to Scripture as you possibly can. Um, that's what you do. Yeah. Great question. You know, Scott, we, uh, I, I co-taught a eschatology class with a with an elder at our at, at our church in uh, Washington and he I love his statement that he used to say all the time he'd say I reserve the right to change my opinion on this through the illumination of the spirit through God's word yeah if that if, if I find something different later that's right everything you hold and believe the conclusions you come to every time you come to the word of God you set them before it and you say if the word of God needs to change this I'll change it but you don't what you don't want to do is say I have this locked-in conclusion that I will never, ever, 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 ever change from because, um, and then when you come to the Word of God, you force every passage to say that. Listen, I don't want to change on depravity, on, on the depravity of man. I, I don't think I will. But even when I come back to Scripture, I have to let Scripture speak to that because Scripture has more authority on depravity than my conclusions on depravity have. And so I have to always set the Bible in a place that's higher than any conclusions that I come up with. And there are some people in some groups and some denominations where they put their theological conclusions above the Bible, and the Bible always has to affirm the theological conclusion. That's dangerous. Even though you might be right 95% of the time in your theological conclusions, you still just never want to be in that, that, um, that, 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 that situation. Let me do this. Let me pray, because uh, we're past time. 
And then if anybody wants to stay around and ask questions, we can do that, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for these men. Thank you for even just the, the really important unseen ways that they care for each other by bringing good food every time together. I thank you, Lord. I think about Chris and um, how he has made us love meat for breakfast, and it's great. And so thankful, Father, for him and other guys all year who uh, helped care for us and feed us and help us to just enjoy our time together where we look forward to coming together. And Lord, it's all come to an end now this year. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless these men and that their, their pursuit of you and these disciplines would continue throughout, not just the summer, but through the rest of their lives. Lord, walk with them and help them. And we give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.